0: Good afternoon. It is a joy, it is a blessing to be here. Um, I'm truly thankful for the the spiritual family, the body that we have here, the opportunities that we have to come to worship our Lord together. And now to open his word, I ask that you'll open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter seven. Isaiah chapter seven. And if you want to maybe... Mark your Bibles here in Isaiah 7, and if you have a a second way to mark, maybe mark in 2 Chronicles 28. So if you do that at the beginning of the sermon, that'll help you out following most of what we're going to study. That's Isaiah 7 and 2 Chronicles 28. God has not given us a spirit of fear, Jonathan just read. In the world of 2020, fear is more widespread and more deeply rooted in society than it has been for some, quite some time, people fear the virus, whether they fear the, the physical effects of it or they fear the economic impact, even the social impact, of what our world will look like uh, coming through this. In today's world, some people fear corruption in law enforcement and injustice in our judicial system. Others fear the chaos in the streets of those who are rising up in protest. Many fear for the political future of our country if one candidate or the other is elected come November. And the list could go on and on of all the different things that are bombarding us to be fearful about. And certainly fear is a natural human emotion, but just like anger and jealousy and resentment, and anxiety, it's an emotion that we need to keep in check. It must be properly directed and properly contained, because when we allow fear to take root in our hearts, it will begin to negatively affect our thinking, to choke out our faith, to stifle our growth, and to compromise our commitment to the Lord. Fear is not just some inevitable and uncontrollable emotion, it in fact is a tool used in Satan's hand against us. And it's something that we need to take seriously and learn to uproot in our lives as Christians. Because when we look in the New Testament, Revelation 21 and verse 8, as it talks about those who will be cast into the lake of fire, the second death, do you know what tops the list? It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving cowardice, God lists as a sin before him. Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, you remember the one-talent man comes back to his master. And what what does he say? He says, I was afraid. And so I took your talent and hid it in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And and what does the the master say? Does he say, oh, you were afraid? I understand. We're all afraid sometimes. That's not what he says. He says, you wicked and lazy servant tells them to cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. And so, brethren, fear, while it's something that we all experience, and it's something that we're all going to have to face, it certainly is something that can turn us away from the Lord. It's something that Satan can use against us to compromise our faith and our commitment to him. Acting out of fear and our service to God is not a matter to be taken lightly. It's not something that God takes lightly. And so for the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, I want to talk about a few different areas that a spirit of fear might manifest itself in our lives. A few different ways that Satan tries to use fear against us and ways that we can be watchful and prevent fear from taking root in our hearts. And so today, the first thing that I want us to consider is that fear... Improper fear can fuel moral compromise. Uh, When we fear the wrong things in the wrong ways, we can begin to seek security and support in the wrong places. When we fear like the world fears, we begin to think the way that the world thinks. And worldly fears lead us towards worldly solutions. Before we know it, we may be buying into the counsel of the wicked and selling our souls to further the agenda of the ungodly. Where do we see this concept in scriptures? Well, I want us to focus on one primary example today, uh, and that is the example of Ahaz and Assyria. Now, there's some Bible stories that you can reference in passing, and and people will get the point. I, I could say it's like David and Goliath, and people would for the most part, say, oh, okay, I understand that. But if I say it's like Ahaz in Assyria, unfortunately, most of us aren't going to get that. That's not necessarily a Bible story that that, uh, all of us as kids learned and we're going to remember. However, it is a very prominent Bible story. In fact, it's told three times in the Bible, in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and in Isaiah 7. And so my hope today is, while we are going to spend a a good amount of time uh, kind of storytelling about Ahaz and Assyria. I hope by the end of our time today, you you can take this story of Ahaz and Assyria and kind of put it next to the other Bible stories in your repertoire. And more than that, we can learn the lesson behind it. The lesson of uh, how fears can negatively affect us in our relationship with the Lord. If you look here in Isaiah 7, if your Bibles are still open there, we see First of all, the situation here, Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, fears Syria, sometimes called Aram, to the north, and Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and uh, Pekah, the king of Israel, are threatening to attack him. Look here at Isaiah 7, verse 1. It says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, so you have Israel, also called Ephraim, here. And Syria, who are mounting this attack and coming all the way up to mount an attack against the capital city, Jerusalem itself. Evidently, they've already penetrated some ways into Judah if they are now uh, approaching Jerusalem itself. And it says that Ahaz here, his heart and the heart of his people shook like the trees of the forest shake before the wind. At this time in history, the major uh, world power was the kingdom of Assyria. Not not Syria, but Assyria, who is farther to the east. And at this time, Syria and Israel are working to form a, a coalition to fight against this oppressive power, the Assyrians. And it doesn't seem that Judah is wanting to join. And so they're going to come down and they're going to conquer Judah and they're going to set up their own king. If you look down in verse six, it says they're going to set up the son of Tabeel as king in Ahaz's place. And that way they would be able to use Judah as part of this coalition and fighting against the major superpower, Assyria. Um, And Ahaz is kind of caught in the middle here of the major world power, Assyria, and these two other kingdoms that are, are coming to fight against him. And if we look in 2 Chronicles 28, we we read a little bit more about what was going on at this time. This passage tells us a little bit more about the attack that Syria and Israel were mounting against Ahaz. In 2 Chronicles 28, starting in verse 5, it says, Therefore the Lord his God gave him, talking about Ahaz, into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Messiah, the king's son, and Azrakim, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. Now we're, we're not told in Isaiah 7 where in this timeline exactly Isaiah's approach of Ahaz happens. But evidently, as Syria and Israel approach Ahaz in his kingdom, and as they approached the city of Jerusalem, they've already ransacked a good portion of Judah. They have taken 120, they, they killed 120,000 of his men of war, and they took 200,000 men and women and children into captivity up to Samaria. And not only that, but Ahaz's own son died in battle. And two of his leading commanders died. And so when we read in Isaiah 7 that Ahaz's heart was shaking like the trees in the wind, we can understand why that is. If some of these things had already happened or were in the process of happening, Ahaz has every reason to to fear. This is not some imaginary fear that he's facing. This is not some remote possibility of tragedy. This seems uh, to be something that has already taken a heavy toll on his kingdom. And is even hit close to home and his own son dying at the hands of Syria and Israel. And yet, what is God's message to Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7? If you look back in Isaiah 7, we, we are told there about the fear that he's facing. But God has a message for him starting in verse 3. In verse 3 of Isaiah 7, it says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Rimariah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Rimariah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. What's God's message to Ahaz? Here he's shaking in his boots that Syria and Israel are coming down, that they've already taken a heavy toll on his kingdom. But God tells him, be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. Be careful how you handle this fear that you're feeling. It's not not wrong that he felt that way, right? It's not wrong that he was dealing with that emotion, but he says, be careful. Don't let fear take root in your heart. Don't let it take control of you. Don't let it shake your faith in God. He says there in verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And he calls Syria and Israel smoldering firebrands. The picture here is, yes, they may have burned you before, but, but they're, they're being snuffed out. And all the smoke that they're raising up against you is because God has snuffed them out and there's no more fire there. All you're seeing is smoke. They're just smoldering firebrands at this point. And what they're planning to do in conquering Jerusalem and setting up a king in your place, it's not going to happen. He says that uh, these kingdoms are no stronger than the human kings that rule them. That the head of Israel or of Samaria is Pekar, the son of Remaliah. The head of Syria is Rezin. These human kings are the, the, the head of these places. But you know who the head of God's people is? The Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. And these human kings uh, should not be something that you fear in comparison. Another interesting feature here is it says that Isaiah was instructed to bring his son with him in approaching Ahaz. And his son's name is Sheer Jashub, which literally translated means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. What's the significance of that? Well, if we go back to 2 Chronicles 28... Perhaps we find out what some of the significance might have been. Back in 2 Chronicles 28, starting in verse 9, after we see them taking these 200,000 people captive to Samaria. In verse 9 of 2 Chronicles 28, it says, But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves? Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, Berechiah, the son of Mishalimoth, Jishikiah, the son of Shalem, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war and said to them, you shall not bring the captives in here for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes of all the assembly. And the men who had been mentioned by name rose and took the captives. With the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them, and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. What happens to those 200,000 people that were captured by Israel? A remnant returns. (laughs) Here God approaches Israel, rebukes them for their sins, and urges them to to return these captives. We don't, as I said in Isaiah 7, we don't know exactly when these words were spoken in all of this conflict. But I think it's at least a possibility that sheer Japh's presence... And saying a remnant shall return may be very applicable to what's going on right then and there. Maybe even at that moment, God is working to bring these people back. If nothing else, we see that God, through these actions here in 2 Chronicles 28, makes it very clear his power to save uh, Judah, to save Ahaz from this threat. Even in the midst of the fear and suffering brought on by Ahaz's unfaithfulness, God was working to show his power, his ability to deliver them from any danger or foe, no matter how hopeless it seemed. But what is Ahaz's response to all of this? Here in 2 Chronicles 28 and verse 16, right after it tells us that God brought back these 200,000 from Israel, it says in verse 16, At that time... King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. God had just brought back 200,000 people that were captive. And what's Ahaz's next action? You know what? I think I need the help of Assyria. I need the help of this foreign superpower to come and defend me against these people. I don't want it to happen again. In 2 Kings chapter 16, Starting in verse 7, we read, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. In verse 8, it says, Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasure of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. Not only does Ahaz not listen to Isaiah, not only does Ahaz not trust in the Lord, Ahaz takes the very treasure from the house of the Lord and gives it to a foreign king to buy his deliverance. Here, Ahaz should have been God's servant and God's son, and yet, there in verse 7, we see him telling the king of Assyria, I am your servant and your son. Ahaz allowed his fear to take root and get the better of him. His earthly fears led him to seek out earthly solutions instead of finding his security and hope in the Lord. When God told him, Be careful, be quiet. Don't fear. Do not let your heart be faint. What did Ahaz do? He wasn't careful. He did allow fear to take root in his heart. And his solution was to seek out the king of Assyria, even at the payment of the very riches of God's house. Well, what happens? We just read there in verse 9 that it seemed to work. The king of Assyria comes. And he comes up against Damascus, Syria. Syria. And he defeats Rezin and destroys his kingdom. And he comes and he attacks Israel. But what eventually happens is Assyria becomes Ahaz's downfall. If you're still here in 2 Chronicles 28, look in verse 20 and 21. It says, So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him, instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. It seemed to help in the moment, right? The immediate threat was gone. And the king of Assyria is all too happy to take payment to come and wipe out these rebellious kings that he was going to fight against anyway. But as he takes out Damascus and as he later takes on out Israel, you know, the land of Judah looks pretty good to him too. And it didn't matter what Ahaz paid him. What we're going to see is Assyria is going to become Ahaz's own downfall. Turn back to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, and we're going to start reading in verse 10. Again, this is the interaction between isaiah and ahaz where he has told him don't fear this isn't going to happen put your trust in god in verse 9 if you are not firm in faith you will not be firm at all in verse 10 it says again the lord spoke to ahaz ask a sign of the lord your god let it be deep as sheol or high as heaven but ahaz said i will not ask and i will not put the lord to the test Verse 13, and he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? What's Ahaz's response? Isaiah says, Ahaz, if you want a sign, ask God for a sign. I'll show you that I will take care of you. I will show you that God is powerful to defend you against this. But Ahaz has already made up his mind what he's going to do. And the last thing that Ahaz wants is somebody challenging his decision. The last thing that he wants is proof that he's made the wrong decision. He's going to, to seek out the help of Assyria, not the help of the Lord. And so he, he kind of clouds his, his refusal here in what almost seem pious statements. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to test the Lord. No, God, God just offered you <laughs> a sign. Ahaz here is clearly not genuinely interested in seeking out the defense of the Lord. And so even though Ahaz refuses God's offer of a sign, Isaiah says, God's going to give you a sign. And he there speaks in language that that does certainly foreshadow the ultimate coming of Christ in the virgin birth. But it has an initial application in a son that would be born then at that time, because you see down in verse 16, As it talks about this boy being born, it says in verse 16, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted, Syria and Israel. By the time this child that foreshadows Christ, but a child that was born then and there, by the time that he's old enough to be at an age of accountability, by the time that he's old enough to to know enough to choose good and, and refuse the evil, in the span of 11 or 12 years, those two Kings that you fear, they're going to be gone. That's God's sign to you. But look down in verse 17. It says, The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria isn't just going to wipe out Syria and Israel, he's going to come against you. The very one that you sought security in, the very one that you sought to come and help you with this threat and this fear that you were feeling, he's going to become your downfall. If you look later on in chapter 8 in verse 5, chapter 8 in verse 5, it says, "...the Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shaloha that flow gently." And rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. It will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. What's God saying? He says, you've, you've refused my solution for peace. You've re- refused the gentle flowing waters that I offered to you. And you instead have rejoiced that here now Syria and Israel are being wiped out by the king of Assyria. That your, your plot worked. But I tell you what's going to happen. That, that river that has started wiping out Syria and now Israel it's going to overflow all its borders and it's going to come into Judah and it's going to come up to the neck and so the king of assyria that you sought to be your ally that you sought as an answer to the fear that you were facing he's going to come all the way up to Jerusalem and it's only barely that has his kingdom survives ultimately it's because of his righteous son hezekiah that the king of Assyria doesn't ultimately wipe out Judah until 150 years later. What happened? Ahaz allowed his fear, his earthly fear, to drive him to some earthly solution. And that earthly solution came back and was his undoing. The very one that he put his trust and his confidence in is the one who struck him down. What's our application of all of this? Our lesson is that worldly fears lead to worldly alliances. Godly fear leads to faithfulness. If there's nothing else that you take away from this, take away chapter 8, verse 11 through 14. Isaiah 8, verse 11 through 14. We read, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the house of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Here, the people of Judah are all concerned about this conspiracy that's going on here. Syria and Israel are conspiring again, together to get this coalition against the king of Assyria. And they're all worried about, well, if, if we join this conspiracy, then what's going to happen to us? And if we, if we join the, the king of Assyria, then what's going to happen to us? He says, don't fear what this people fear. I'll tell you what you need to fear. You need to fear the Lord of hosts. He's the one that you need to regard as holy. He's the one that you need to revere. He's the one who you need to put your fear and your trust in. In And in the end, there in verse 14, he will either be your sanctuary or he will be your downfall. Either he will be your rock of refuge or your rock of stumbling. At the end of the day, what's going to determine what happens in Judah is not which side they're on in this conflict. What's going to determine what's going to happen to you and your people, Ahaz, is what Your relation is to the God of Israel. How you respond to the Lord of hosts. That's the determining factor. Brethren, do you understand what this all means for us? I know there's a lot in that section that's a little bit confusing. Hopefully we understand what's going on in this story. But what about us? At the end of the day... The future of America is not in the hands of Donald Trump or Joe Biden. It's not in the hands of any politician. It's not going to be determined in the voting booth. The future of America, the future of your life, of your family, the future of this world is in the hands of Almighty God. And what's going to determine what happens in this life is how we stand in relationship to him. He is the one that we need to fear. He is the one that we need to put our confidence in. And I'm not saying in this that we we shouldn't vote, that we shouldn't let our voice be heard on that level. By all means, any opportunity that we have in some way or another to speak up for what we believe to be righteousness, we should use that opportunity. But brethren, God help us if we allow our fears to drive us to seek out deliverance from the corrupt and ungodly. What, what so often happens is that I fear what is going to happen in our country if, if so-and-so gets in office. I, some fear for the life of the unborn, and rightly so. And they fear for our religious freedoms. And others fear for uh, the unjust treatment of minorities, or the poor, or the marginalized. But we convince ourselves that in order to solve these problems, we need to make some worldly alliance to to support the corrupt and the ungodly, and the deceitful and the wicked. We've convinced ourselves that we either need to side with Assyria, or we either need to side with, with Israel, and Syria. What's God's answer? God's answer is, you side with me. At the end of the day, that is the determining factor, is where we stand in relationship to God. The only true solution is God himself, not Assyria, not the anti-Assyrian alliance, not the head of Samaria, not the head Of Syria. You could say there back in Isaiah 7, as he said, that the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. You can say the head of the Republicans is Donald Trump. And the head of the, of the, the Democrats is Joe Biden. But the head of the Christian is Jesus Christ. Is our Lord and Savior. And we need to make sure that our fears of what's going to happen in this country do not drive us towards worldly solutions. But we recognize that it is only God who can save our nation. It's only God who determines the future of my life, my family's life, our country's life, the world's future is in the hands of Almighty God. Let's read one last passage, Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 20. Isaiah 10 and verse 20, it says, In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant of Israel eventually realized that they were putting their faith in the wrong places eventually realized they were seeking the wrong solutions. But they realized once their country was gone (laughs) that it was the Lord of hosts that they really needed to be looking for the solution to. Brethren, let us not learn that lesson too late. Let it not be however many years from now when our country has fallen apart and there's only a few left That we finally realize that it was God who we needed all along. Let's stop relying on the ones who strike us. uh, On the ones who have torn down our morality. Let's put our true faith in Almighty God. He is the one who we need to fear and he is the one who we need to trust. If you will pray with me. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are sovereign and that you are in complete control and that nothing on this earth happens without your knowledge and your awareness and that you are very much at work in our lives. Help us, Lord, to believe that. Help us to trust in that. And Lord, there are many things going on in our nation, in the world that cause us fear. Uh, We fear for our religious freedoms. We fear for uh, our society, for the immorality around us, the disorder around us. But Lord, we recognize that you are the only one big enough to handle those fears. And so while we ask for your wisdom and your guidance to promote righteousness in whatever ways we are able to, we ask that you will help us To put our trust and our confidence and our fear in you. To recognize that no matter who is in power, no matter who is at war, no matter how hopeless it seems, that you can take 200,000 of Israel who are taken captive and bring them right back. That you can take the king of Assyria and his entire army and wipe them out in one night and turn them packing. Lord, we recognize that you are just as powerful today as you were then. And we ask that you will help us to trust in your power and to seek out our primary solution, our primary deliverance in you and in you alone. Help us, Lord, to be first Christians above all else. Help our primary allegiance and citizenship to be those in the kingdom of heaven. And help the way that we live our lives from day to day reflect that. Help us not to fear as the world fears. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you fear today? As we said, fear is a natural human emotion. But, as many other emotions, it's something that we need to make sure we keep in check, that's properly directed. If you have been allowing worldly fears to make you seek out worldly solutions, won't you turn to God today? Won't you turn to him to be your confidence, to be your sanctuary, your rock, and your refuge? He's the only one that can handle it. If you in some way need to turn back to the Lord, need to repent in some public way, confessing your sins before these brethren, asking for their prayers, we want to offer you that opportunity And if you have never committed your life to the Lord, if your old life has not been buried in the waters of baptism, by God's grace, you can confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ today. You can put your old life behind you. And by the power of the resurrection, you can raise out of the waters of baptism to be a new creation, having a hope of eternal life. If there is any way that we can help you in your service to the Lord today, won't you let us know at this time as Rick leads us in a song?